Good morning. Um, this morning's reading is from Mark 10, verse 46 to 52. They came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a large cr- and a large crowd, Bartimaeus, son of Thomas, a blind beggar, was sitting by the road. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on him, mercy on me. Many warned him to keep quiet, but he was crying out all the more, Have mercy on me, son of David. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called the blind man and said to him, Have courage, get up, he is calling for you. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to, and came, came to Jesus. Jesus answered him, What do you want me to do for you? Rabboni, the blind blind man, said, I want to see. And Jesus said to him, Go, your faith has saved you. Immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. Thanks, Peter. Well, good morning, everybody. Come on, Jane. I have the pleasure of interviewing Jane Dean today. And welcome up. We'll stand in the light. Jan is a hospital chaplain. Don't know if any of you have been in hospital and somebody has come to spend some time with you. Well, that is what um, Jan volunteers to do. And Jan works at the Ipswich Hospital and you go two days a week? Two days a week. Two's a week. So, Jan, tell us, what, what is the role of a hospital chaplain? All right, thank you. Um, we're listeners... We don't do much talking, and anyone that knows me will know that I'm a bit like that myself. (laughs) We're not there to give advice. This is done by the medical team. I believe that the chaplain's role is very important in the hospital and in the aged care settings. We're present when people are worried, they're depressed, some of them have broken relationships, and they're often lonely. This holistic approach benefits the speedier recovery of patients. The chaplain's there to provide a listening ear, to provide emotional support and spiritual support to patients, relatives, friends, and even hospital staff. We can provide support during a crisis, as well, during bereavement, as well as ongoing recovery and while people are going through pal care in the palliative care ward. If people are open to it, I share comforting scripture, I pray with them. With others, it's just to open the door and get them to consider Christianity and what Christ could mean to them. One thing that's very important in being a chaplain is their privacy. We don't go out of the room and tell other people what someone's told us. We listen to their story and we have to remember that it's their story, not our story. So, I don't think you're paid, but is any, do any chaplains get paid? Some do. Uh, some of, um, are, are employed by their organisation, but most of us are volunteers, which means a lot of us are kind of towards the more senior years. So, who oversees you? Carinity, which is the Baptist group, oversees me. Um, but I don't only visit patients because in Ipswich Hospital there'd only be probably half a dozen a week, so I visit other denominations as well. What brings you joy about this role? 
There's a lot that brings me joy. One of the things that brings me joy is when I leave a patient's room, when I know I've been able to share the joy of Jesus with them, that brings me the most joy. Um, and being there for them when the, the, the parents, the relatives are anxious or often when the patient knows they're going to pass away, being there with them and sharing Jesus brings me a lot of joy. Sometimes they're facing a procedure and they're really, really nervous and so I pray with them. Um, so it's a privilege to feel and share their concerns and their worries and what they believe. It's, what, it's what's happening to them that's important. So they control the conversation. Sometimes they don't want to talk about God at all. They're angry with God for various reasons. So I just have to listen to them and try not to persuade them either way. Just listen to their story. Um, occasionally I'll visit a lovely Christian patient and they will say, let me pray for you. And my face breaks in. Yes, lovely, do that. So that's a really encouraging thing as I visit patients. Sounds good. What's difficult about the role? Well, one of the initial difficulties when you go and see a patient is that you don't get told anything about them. You know their name, their denomination, and that's all. And you go into a room and you have to sum up a lot of things really quickly to know how to approach them. So um, being perceptive and observant and all these kind of things are really important. Um, sometimes they are in pain and they don't want to talk, so that's fine. Sometimes I'll say, well, can I just pray with you? So many patients are nominal in their beliefs. They don't want to talk about God. Um, so I need to be sensitive to that because once we start putting our demands on them, then they just switch off. So I just have to walk out of the room and leave them in God's hands, remembering that I'm God's messenger and that it's God that changes people's hearts. So I often feel sad when I've been ministering to someone who resists God and then they die. But I need to move on. I've got to just leave that in God's hands and uh, go and talk to the next person. Yeah, I'm sure that must be difficult. And I know that people come and go. So Jan might see them one week. She never knows what's happened to them. They've gone home or they may have even died. Yeah, and that's hard. Jan, I wonder if you could share a story with us that illustrates the benefit of chaplaincy from your experience. Well, I'll just tell you a story uh, of a recent experience. I was called to a ward uh, by the ward staff uh, because of a you know rather desperate situation. Uh, this lady was very ill and she wanted to die. She'd had enough. Uh, and she was very ill. Her husband was with her and he was upset because he didn't want her to die. And, uh, and so I was kind of called into this room where one wanted to die and one said, I don't want you to die. And I was supposed to try and sort that out for them. But it's not my role to do that. They had a very shallow understanding of God. I listened to them for a while and suggested that they work with the medical team and uh, through this acute situation, sometimes when everything's happening, they think the worst and said, look, just work with the team. Let's not make any decisions uh, at the moment uh, and just, just start getting better. So she slowly improved over about five weeks. And I did pray with them each time I visited, even though their, their understanding was fairly nominal, I prayed with them. And after a couple of weeks, I felt comfortable enough to leave them a little publication about getting older and, and you know thinking about God. 
And so I encourage their, them to consider their spiritual condition. Um, and because I said to them, none of us know when we're going to die and we need to be ready to meet God. They were very appreciative of my visits and my encouragement to them. I prayed when I left the room and after I'd left them that they would seriously consider their relationship with God. And I, I just have to leave, once again, leave that in God's hands. So I guess um, I would like you to pray for me when you think of me, um, that I'll be perceptive. This is really important, that I'll really listen to people when they're talking to me and that I can confidently share a short gem from God's word. You may have met Lynn Williams. She usually comes to the next service. She's also a hospital chaplain, so pray for Lynn as well. She goes to the Western Suburbs Hospitals. And Lynn's going to be interviewed in the next service, as is Ray Crompton, who also is a chaplain. So will you join with me in praying for Lynn? You might reach your hand out to her. Oh, Lynn, we're talking to Jane, Jane here. Lynn. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Lord, thank you for these stories um, and the insight that we've gained about hospital chaplaincy. Thank you that there is the freedom still to do that. And we pray that you would all go, go before um, Jan and Lynn and Ray. Lord, as they approach a patient, would you give them your words for that particular person? Lord, may they not grow weary in doing this when they often do not know the outcome. That's just little episodes, but you are always there, Lord. You go with the person when they go home. You go with their family. So, Lord, would you continue by your spirit to minister to many people who are in hospital? And I particularly think of that couple Jan's just shared about, as they may read that booklet that she's given them as they spend more time together. Lord, would you open their eyes to understand that Jesus is the one who can offer them fullness of life, even if death is approaching. So, Lord, we commit Jane to you and thank you for her faithful service. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hey church, my name's Mark, I'm one of the pastors here. I was saying to someone before the service this morning that uh, on the weather report this morning, they showed the floods in Victoria, the floods in uh, Tasmania, and then they said, and we're going to have a full day of rain in Brisbane today. And the weatherman said, we've just got to get through it. I think we'll be okay. We want to pray today for those who are going to be affected by flooding and for those down south, particularly at the moment. So let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for your sustaining love for us. And scripture gives us rain as a symbol of your blessing. And we realize that as a nation, we are an incredibly blessed country. We have been blessed with resources. We have been blessed with freedom. But Lord, so often as a country, we disdain the one who has given us all those gifts and so lord as this rain falls today my prayer is that this country would experience showers of renewal spiritual renewal 
that you would turn the hearts of this nation back to Jesus. And as once was said over this uh, continent to be the great south land of the Holy Spirit, that that would be, that there would be revival. Lord, revive your church in this country. Father, we pray for our government at all levels. And our prayer, Heavenly Father, today is that as people down south are experiencing these devastating floods again, that you would raise up people to help them. We pray that you would bring the rain to an end and the floodwaters would recede. And again, it just feels again over the last few years we have seen time and time of natural disasters and there are so many now who have been affected by it, who, whose lives are again being turned upside down. Oh Lord, raise up your people to be there, be the hands and feet of Jesus in those situations. And Lord, all around us there is difficulty and strife. And it is days like these when we see that strife and we see the difficulty, we find ourselves crying out to the one who is the Lord of the storm. And in not just physical storms and natural storms, but in the storms of life, in the storms of discord and family disruption. Oh, Father, we pray for your presence. We pray for your peace. Lord, there is so much hurt in this world. Use us to minister, as we've heard this morning from uh, what chaplains do. Lord, we're grateful for that opportunity to be the hands and feet of Jesus wherever we go. And so, Lord, we also pray for the church around the world today, and we pray especially for missionaries that we support, and we pray for the church that will be persecuted today for the name of Jesus. We pray for them, Lord, that they will stand firm, and we pray for the persecutors that they would become missionaries for Jesus. And now, Lord, as we open your word again in this wonderful gospel of Mark, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, speak to all of us. Whatever barrier there is for us to hear from you today, take it away, Lord, and speak to your children. As Samuel said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. In Jesus' name, amen. Come to the end of chapter 10 of Mark today. We've been working our way through the gospel. And this is the end of basically the journey. Next time we come back to Mark, we'll be heading into Jerusalem. And it's the end of a journey that many people call the journey to Jerusalem. But the idea being that as Jesus with his disciples journey together, it's like a picture of discipleship. And Jesus takes these moments along this journey to teach them about living for him, walking with him as Christians. And so today we come to the end of chapter 10. For the rest of the year, we're moving into our family series. And then I can't believe I'm saying this, but after that is Christmas. Can you believe that? It cannot possibly be. I think it's like nine weeks to Christmas now or 10 weeks to Christmas. Cannot possibly be, which means that I am, if it's 10 weeks to Christmas, I'm nine weeks and six days away from doing my Christmas shopping. And that's okay. And then next year we'll come back to uh, Mark and finish it off. But it's been, for me, I've just loved walking my way through Mark. It's such a powerful gospel. We see Jesus walking the earth, showing what it means to follow him. And today we come to one of the most famous passages of Mark, the healing of a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. 
It's one of those stories that you often, if you're in Sunday school as a child, you heard blind Bartimaeus a lot. And as it comes, as Jesus is coming into Jericho, we have to deal with something that comes up so often with this passage. People who particularly want to say that the Bible is not inspired, the Bible is not the written word of God, they want to pick this story as the one to attack to say, see, it's not true. And the reason they do that, and we're just going to take a few minutes to deal with this, because I think we need to know what people say, is that when Matthew records the same story in his gospel, Matthew says there were two blind men, not one blind man. Luke, when he records this story, says they were leaving Jericho, not going in, uh, going into Jericho, not coming out like Mark does. And people look at this and go, ah, see, see, it's inconsistent. The reality is Jesus spent at least two or three days in Jericho. He was coming in and going out the whole time. Was it on his way in or out? Well, at the end of the day, does it really matter? There was a blind beggar named Bartimaeus who was probably sitting there with another blind mate and he had an encounter with Jesus. And I think sometimes we get caught up in these little moments of, oh, is it true? It It was at the door, the gate of Jericho and this blind man who was one of the most disdained people in a society that said, if you were sick, you were sick because you were sinful. You were sick because your family was sinful. This blind man who would have been ostracised by society, had no way to earn an income, had no, probably had no family to look after him, hence why he is begging at the gate. This man who was ignored and rejected by a whole community has an encounter with the living God. That's what's important about this passage. It's hard for us to imagine today in a world where we have uh, a braille and we have so many ways to help people with, who are impeded with sight. What it was like for a blind man in Jesus' day. There was no help. Like I said, in a society that regarded sickness as a sign of your sinfulness, people thought you were unclean. And yet this man is no longer, when we come to Scripture, just called a blind man sitting at the gate. Do you see what happens? He's given a name, Bartimaeus. Of all the people in Scripture who we don't have names for, this one we have a name, Bartimaeus. Why does Mark include his name? I think probably because he ended up being part of the early church. Perhaps he was there when, in the, the room when Jesus entered after he'd risen again. Perhaps he was part of the upper room at Pentecost. We don't know, but it seems like when Mark includes the name, he includes it for a reason. And this blind Bartimaeus who would have been rejected by society, he shows in three ways that he understands better who Jesus is than the crowd and everyone else around Do you remember last week in the passage just before this, James and John had come to Jesus and said, let us sit at your right and your left hand. Give us positions of prominence. Give us positions of power. What does Bartimaeus ask for? Have mercy. Just have mercy, Lord. James and John wanted prominence. James and John had an attitude of entitlement. We deserve this. Bartimaeus just says, help the crowd follow him along, follow Jesus along, and look how the crowd describe Jesus in verse 47. They know him simply as Jesus of Nazareth, the blind man who can't see, 
sees more powerfully spiritually because what does he call Jesus? Son of David. The crowd who could see saw him as nothing more than a man from a town called Nazareth. But when the blind man hears the footsteps of Jesus and hears that it's Jesus who's coming, he cries out, Son of David. And if that is a phrase that comes from the Old Testament showing that he believes that Jesus is Messiah, the, the sent one, the one who will save. And the mob... Whenever you see in Mark that phrase, a large crowd or a crowd, really the better translation would be the mob. As the mob just follows along Jesus, looking for what they can pick up from the man who can multiply loaves and fishes. Here is Bartimaeus. And when they try to tell him to be quiet and they say, be, be shh, just be quiet. You don't get to speak. You're the blind guy. It says, many warned him to keep quiet. But he was crying out all the more. And that word crying there is actually the word in other elements of the Greek world would be used for a woman crying out in labour. That's how much he cried out. The crowd were fickle looking for their bread, looking for their loaves and fishes. The crowd would be the ones who would proclaim Hosanna to the son of David as he walks in Jerusalem, rides into Jerusalem. That would be the crowd that would say crucify him at the cross. But Bartimaeus simply cries out, have mercy on me. I need you. It's common in Mark's miracles that when the person cries out, that's the word that you use. And for you today, friend, if you have come to a point in your life where you are saying, I don't have the answers anymore, I just need mercy from God, then hear this today. We believe and serve a Jesus who opens his hands with the mercy you seek. What a thought. We used to sing a song when I was a kid in church. Mercy drops round me are falling, but for the showers we plead. I can't help but whenever there is a lot of rain, think of that song. I don't even, can't even remember the rest of it, and there's people here now going, oh, no, 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 singing along, that's good for you, don't do it out loud, because you make me feel bad that I should remember that song. But for me, when I come to a passage like this today, and here is this man who simply wants mercy, it's like all he's asking for is a few drips of water. God opens up the heavens and pours mercy on him. That is our God. When the blind man cries out, please have mercy, Jesus comes. And there's this little phrase that comes in verse 49 that was so easy to miss. As Bartimaeus is crying out and the crowd is telling him to be quiet, look at the first two words of verse 49. Some of the most profound words, I think, in the whole of the New Testament. Jesus stopped. Jesus could have said, I'm sorry, Bartimaeus, I'm on my way to Jerusalem to deal with a much bigger issue than you. He could have said, I'm sorry, Bartimaeus, I don't have time for you. Look at the crowd that's pressing in on me. He could have said, sorry, Bartimaeus, I don't have time for you. I've just got disciples who still don't even get it after three years with me. I've got to deal with them first because I'm going to build a church on them. 
when Bartimaeus cries out, Jesus stopped. And for us in our hectic society, in our million mile an hour world, all the power when someone stops. It's what a chaplain does, isn't it? It's what a chaplain does when someone is in a hospital. If you've ever spent any time in hospital bed, you'll know. It's incredibly lonely. And you can have a visitor, and the visitor might stay for half an hour. That's wonderful. Praise God for that. But then you've got 23 and a half other hours there. It's lonely. And then someone shows up and says, hey, can I just sit and talk with you? Can I sit with you? Jan stops. Jesus stopped. Some years ago, we had a young person in our church bring a friend along from high school to church. And I was talking to her, uh, her friend and I said, oh, it's good to meet you, blah, blah, blah. How did you come to be here today? And her story was, I was sitting on a bench at school and I was just sad. And this person came and sat with me. She just sat with me. I asked her why. She said, oh, that's what we talk about at our church, about frontline and, and being with people where they are. And I thought, oh, I want to come and see a church that talks like that. Do you see how it started? She stopped. We run on in our lives so quickly on important things, don't get me wrong, when so often the call for us is that we are so quick that we miss the one who is calling out, please stop. And the power of that moment when Jesus stops. You can see how big a moment it was when they tell the blind man, hey, have courage, get up, he's calling you. Look how Bartimaeus responds in verse 50. He threw off his coat, jumped up and came to Jesus. Imagine that response in the middle of this guy who's been sitting there for days and days, just hoping someone would give him something with a cloak around him at a pretty cool time of year. And he throws that cloak off and he runs to Jesus. And as Jesus answering, what do you want to do for you? what do you want me to do for you? Our minds go back for a minute to the passage we looked at last week. When James and John come to Jesus, and Jesus asks them exactly the same question: what do you want me to do for you? Their response was: let us sit at your right and your left hand. The blind man Bartimaeus says, Rabboni. I want to see. He doesn't say rabbi, which was the Jewish phrase for teacher, which is usually the phrase that people would use with Jesus, rabbi. Rabboni is a different word, stemmed from rabbi, but it carries more authority. He's not just saying, hey, teacher. He's saying, teacher, Lord, the one I bow the knee to. I want to see. And just Jesus utters these amazing words, go, your faith has saved you. And immediately he could see and began to follow Jesus on the road. There are two things there that Jesus doesn't do that strike me. The first is he doesn't do a big ceremony. He doesn't do a big jumping about. 
out. We're not even told what he did. He just said, you're healed. There's no yelling and carrying on. It's simple because Jesus is Lord. And the second thing Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't say to Bartimaeus, well, I know that you want your, height, your sight healed, but what's more important is your soul. And so often in the church tradition from which I come, we didn't really care too much, frankly, about people's physical well-being. We cared about their souls, and the souls are important, don't get me wrong. But here we have Jesus who shows that he cares about the whole person. Jesus cares about our physical needs. Jesus cares about our mental needs. Jesus cares about our relational needs. Jesus cares about our souls. Jesus cares about the whole person. And so Jesus looks at him. Go, your faith has saved you. Do you notice though what happens? Jesus says, go. Bartimaeus stays. Jesus says, go, you're good. Your faith has saved you. But Bartimaeus doesn't go. He follows Jesus. And the context of this passage, given that we go straight into Jerusalem at the beginning of chapter 11, is that Bartimaeus followed him all the way to Jerusalem. Bartimaeus was there when they cra- the, the crowd cried. He was probably there, like I said, when they also cried, crucify him. Bartimaeus follows and as I was preparing for this sermon, one of the things I noticed as I listened to the way other people treated the passage, and particularly commentaries as well, is one of two things happened. Either verse 52 was taken out of context, and instead of making it about Jesus, it was all about your faith has saved you without realising the context of Jesus. This is about Jesus, not Bartimaeus. Or people just didn't mention it at all. They talked about lordship. They talked about followership. But they never acknowledged that Jesus healed this man. And so often in the church today, we we go to one of two extremes, don't we? We either go to, well, let's see people helped and healed and, and whole, or we look after their souls. But Jesus, like I said, cares for both. And one person said to me, I don't know how to treat passages like this because I do believe in a Jesus who still heals. But I don't want to hurt people who have have been crying out to Jesus for years for healing and they haven't experienced it. But that is the tension of the Christian life when we worship a powerful God who is both powerful to heal and he still heals. He is also powerful to choose not to this side of eternity. And so often what we do is we throw the word but in there, don't we? As though we've got to make an excuse for God. God doesn't need us to make excuses for him. Someone once asked Charles Spurgeon, how do you defend the word of God? He said, you no more need to defend the word of God than you need to defend a lion. Just let it out of its cage. We don't need to defend God. We don't need to defend the word. We believe in a God who is powerful to heal and is powerful to choose when he heals. The ultimate healing for the Christian is the one thing that should make us terrified, death. And I'm often reminded of Billy Graham when he was, there were rumours at one point that he'd already died and he wasn't dead. 
And he said, rumours of my death greatly abound. And one day you will hear the rumour and it will be true. But don't for a moment think that I am really dead because I will be more fully alive than you can ever imagine. For the Christian, death is the doorway to complete healing. Hallelujah. I believe in a God that still heals. I will pray for people who need healing. We had a situation some years ago where a guy came one day and he'd had some sort of injury and he couldn't open his hand. He came to church and his hand was like this. He was right-handed. He needed his hand and he could not open it. And he said, Mark, could we pray? So we went aside in the room over there. When we pray for people, we, we don't make a big spectacle of it because we, we don't think the power is in the spectacle. The power is in the one who answers our prayers. We went into that room and we prayed. He hadn't been able to open that hand for weeks. And as we prayed, his hand opened. God still heals. I have a friend who was uh, on his way to speak at a conference. He had a massive migraine. And for him, a migraine lasts for about three days. He, he has this uh, condition that basically it knocks him out for days, usually ends up in hospital. He was going to speak at this thing and it was a, an outreach event. And he was praying, Lord, help me. I want to be able to speak for you. And as he arrived, the migraine went. And people came to faith that day. We believe in a God who does and still heals today. Hallelujah. We don't worship a dead Jesus. We don't worship a Jesus who's not interested. We don't worship a Jesus who doesn't care. We worship a Jesus who cares, who stops, and he acts. And that's the call for us. For the church today, for all of us, I think there are three things we need to take from a passage like this. The first is we need to be interruptible. We need to have the kind of lives that in our workplaces and in our streets that we're not rushing ahead so much that we can't stop and see when God says, look at this person here, pray for them, stop and pray for them, be there for them. The second is we need to be desperate in prayer like Bartimaeus was. The needs of our community will not be solved by more government programs. The needs of our community will be solved as revival comes. And there's a great quote by D.L. Moody who said, every great movement of God can be traced to a kneeling figure. That's part of our role as this church in this community is to hold up this community to God and say, please, Lord, act. We need you right now. The third thing is, I think as churches today, more than ever, in an era of the grey zone where people feel like their world is just in flux and they don't know where to turn, churches have got to be more than places where we get together, we sing some songs, we listen to a, a guy preach and then have some morning tea. We've got to be places of wholeness and grace. And not just me praying for people. I don't have some special warrant with God. You pray. If you're talking with someone after the service and they say, hey, I've got this thing going on in my life. If you're a believer, you have the same Holy Spirit in you that I have in me. And you worship the same Jesus as I worship. And you call out to the same powerful God that I call out to. Let's be the kind of church 
that cries out to God on behalf of others and expects our God to work and to work powerfully. That, to me, is what a flourishing community looks like, one that prays expectantly and powerfully. And there'll be a lady probably today at the 1015 service, she usually comes to 1015, and her name is Gwen. Some of you will know Gwen. And some months ago, Gwen had a bad fall. She's quite old. She'd probably be upset with me saying that. Um, but she's in, I think she's in her 90s. She loves Jesus. Like, wow. You spend time with Gwen, you come away loving Jesus just a bit more. She has this powerful faith. One day I said to her, I've got a bit of a sore back. And she said, why, have you, what, why do you think? And I said, oh, sometimes if I sit for too long, I get a sore back. And she said, so God's given you a way to know you've got to get up and about, but you just ignore that, right? That's Gwen to me. Gwen will call me out. Gwen will say stuff. But man, does she pray. She had this fall, and it was incredibly sad to go to her, see her at the hospital. She didn't know where she was. She, was ba- she barely understood who she was. And the doctors were saying she will never, ever go home. This will be her. She will only deteriorate from here. People rallied to pray for her. Six weeks later, she was sitting at that chair over there in church, praising Jesus. Don't tell me we have a God who still doesn't work today. He is amazing. Let's be that church. Heavenly Father, thank you for the example of Bartimaeus crying out. Thank you for the example Jesus gives of stopping. Thank you for the example of Jesus healing. And I pray that we as a church would be a place where there is salvation of soul, there is healing of body, there is restoration of relationships. Because you are the God of all of those things. And Lord, today as we come to the end of this chapter 10 of Mark, it's been a wonderful journey, this journey to Jerusalem. I feel like we've done the journey with Jesus and the disciples together. But I pray for us as a church, Lord, our our community needs churches that will hold up Jesus in all his beauty and all his fullness and all his grace and all his power. May we be that church, I pray. Make us truly a community that confounds those who want to say that the church is dying. It's not dying because Jesus is Lord. May we be that place that confounds those who want to tear it down to be a place of healing and wholeness and most of all, holding up Jesus. And we pray that in his mighty name. Amen. We have a powerful God, do we not? The um, last song we're going to sing is called Raise a Hallelujah. And um, you might be aware that, that word hallelujah actually literally means praise God. I imagine um, Bartimaeus, after he'd had that encounter with Jesus, that he went away praising him and nothing could, could stop him. No um, words of unbelief from anybody else. <laughs> he'd had that touch from the Saviour. And um, you know, we can experience the same thing in our own lives. And um, so I encourage you to come and stand with us and um, let's sing this last song together.
presence of my enemies I raise a hallelujah louder than the unbelief I raise a hallelujah my weapon is a melody Hallelujah, heaven comes to fight for me. Louder and louder, you're gonna hear my 
praises roll up from the ashes hope will arise death is defeated the king is alive I raise a hallelujah I raise a After the service, join us for morning tea. And I would like to particularly acknowledge those who set up for church this morning, which was pretty much done in the rain, right? Because they had to bring everything up from the shed. Jean and the team up the back and Daryl, the kids' own guys, the worship team. How about we put our hands together and just thank them. Every week they serve us so faithfully. If you'd like to know more about our church, use the response card at flbc.org.au slash respond. Let's pray this prayer as we close from 1 Thessalonians about a God who cares for all of us. And now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. And all God's people said...